in Mark chapter 5. Mark is a, is a brilliant writer. doesn't get the credit that he deserves, really. But Mark wrote two stories together, which is something that he does. He takes one story and he sticks it in the middle of another story. Theologians called it a, call it a Markin sandwich. And his sandwich is he takes a story of a 12-year-old girl and a woman who's had a problem for 12 years, and he combines the stories. And so it begins with Jairus coming to Jesus and saying, you've got to help me, my daughter is sick and at the point of death. And Jesus says, all right, I'll come. And then he's interrupted by another, another woman who stealthily touches him. And then all of a sudden, you know, Mark says there's a press of the crowd. He could hardly walk. Everybody was touching him. And he says, hold on, hold on, hold on. Somebody touched me. And the disciples are like, yeah, they sure did. Everybody's been touching you. And he's like, no, no, no. I felt it because virtue went out for me. And he finds, he finds that woman. And now the, the second literary device that the Mark uses is a chiasm. He uses it almost every, almost everything that he writes is chiastic. And what isn't chiastic is in a parallel structure. This is a chiasm. So at the, at the beginning and end you have, you know, the woman has the issue 12 years and the end you have the girl is 12 years old. And he, he steps it up. And right at the middle, you know, the, the big meaning of a chiasm happens. There's like a twist that happens in the very center. In the very center are the words, there's no need to bother the master any further. Your daughter is dead. And on each side of that center is statements of faith. Jesus tells the woman, it is your faith that has saved you. And then immediately Jesus responds to Jairus, don't worry, just have faith. And the reason that I'm sharing that with you because in my mind, that's an example of mustard seeds, that faith is something that is very small, but it's very powerful. It, um, um, it's like in physics. The, um, when you have a machine, there's the concept of mechanical advantage. You, you can hook up a pulley so that, you know, you pull on something, and, and though you're only small and little, you know, you're, you're lifting something that's ten times your weight. That's mechanical advantage. The idea of the mustard seed is it's a tremendous mechanical advantage because you're taking something that weighs almost nothing and you use it to move a mountain. And that's the principle. That's the fundamental principle that Jesus teaches in the mustard seed. And the reason it's significant in this story is because death is at the center and it's surrounded by faith. And the message is, Remember, Dr. Simone mentioned, you know, this is the issue nobody has the answer to, right? Death is overcome by faith. 
faith in Christ overcomes death. And that was, that was the meaning that rings through this, this story in, in Mark chapter 5, that everything seemed completely hopeless. And what happened? Jesus was touched, and Jesus touched. The connection of the human with the divine causes the mountain to move. However deep the difficulty is, when we unite our, uh, our weakness with God's strength, things beyond our imagination, things beyond what we can even dare to believe, happen. Now, that's, that's the thrust of what I want to share later in mustard seeds, but I, I want to leverage off of that because education and the three angels is what I'm talking to you about. There is a quote in this book in chapter 20. It's um, on page 80. Top of the page, it's this first quote. When those who have reached the years of youth and manhood see no difference between our schools and the colleges of the world, and have no preference as to which they attend, though error is taught by precept and example in the schools of the world, then there is a need of closely examining the reasons that lead to such a conclusion. Our institutions of learning may swing into worldly conformity. Step by step, they may advance to the world, but they are prisoners of hope, and God will correct and enlighten them and bring them back to their upright position of distinction from the world. That is my hope. And that is what I want to leverage. I want to be like that woman who stealthily touched the hem of Jesus' garment. I want to touch the border of his garment and appeal to him that this not be a prophecy that sits idle. I want to push it. And I want to push it here and I want to push it to you. And I, I want us to push it together that it begins to roll like a snowball down a mountain and gathers and enlarges and causes great movement not just in the institutions that we represent but worldwide because my point here is that these things are not unrelated that education and the finishing of the three angels message are completely united and that it is God's intention to use our institutions of learning to develop young people who will rise up and fulfill their calling and stand in the most challenging time of the world's history. The problem is, a similar problem, Jesus had a problem with his disciples, Paul had a problem with people in Corinth, and I think it's the same problem. I think it's a problem that we have too. It is entirely possible 
for, for um, someone to teach something. You probably have had this in your classroom, where you teach something, and it's like you never taught anything at all. You come back, and you're like, hey, weren't you guys in the room when I went over this stuff? But it seems like nobody got it, right? Like, what was happening while I was talking? What happened to my teaching? Nothing happened. Um, and Jesus had this issue with his disciples. Um, Failure to understand what manner of persons, this is a question that Peter asks, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening, that's the pushing, unto the coming of the day of the Lord, wherein the heavens, being on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. What, what a question that is. What, what kind of person ought ye to be? Dr. Saman talked about that this morning. You know, he said to his students, you know, back, back in the 1800s, people were getting ready every day for the second coming. They were anticipating it. How ready do you feel now? Nobody felt ready. What manner of person ought you to be? This was quoted earlier. I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable sacrifice, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? Yeah, it's the renewing of your mind. The mind is where the issue is, which is why it's an education issue, right? And what kind of mind should we have? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The natural man does not receive the things of God. Um, they, they're foolishness unto him, neither can he know him, them. In other words, the natural man, when the natural man is being taught the things of God, they don't make any sense. He goes on, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as babes in Christ. In other words, you couldn't get the spiritual things because you still really weren't that much transformed. He said, I fed you with milk, not with meat. In other words, I gave you the shallow spiritual things, not the deep ones. For hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither are you yet now able. And then this is verse 3. For you are yet carnal, whereas, whereas there is among you Envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal? In other words, if there, isn't, if, if there isn't the peace that Jesus prayed for amongst his disciples, it's because we are yet carnal. If, if we do not have peace and harmony amongst us, it's because we have issues. And the disciples had the same issues. It was from Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4 is teaching them about the kingdom of God. And, you know, he says, he, he that has an ear, let him hear. And so they came to him and said, uh, we don't get this. And they said, he said to them, you don't get the parable? Then how will you know all parables? Um, later on in Mark chapter 7, 
when he was entered into the house, this is, this is talking about what's clean and unclean, what you can eat, what you can't eat. And after he said these things, he's offended everybody. And, and the disciples are like, there must be some spiritual deep meaning to this because we really don't get it. And when he was entered in the house, the people from the people, his disciples asked him concerning the parable, and he saith unto them, What? Are you also without understanding? They didn't get the things that Jesus was teaching. Then in Mark chapter 8, there's this little discussion. Um, I had this often with my parents growing up. They would say things to me like, Are you dumb or are you just plain stupid? And that's kind of intimidating because I always seemed to get the answer wrong and I couldn't remember what I answered last time but I was sure it had to be the other one because I got wrong. I mean, I'm always lost, right? And this is the same awkward kind of conversation. Perceive ye not, neither ye understand. Have you yet, have you, you yet your heart is hardened? Having eyes, see ye not. Having ears, hear ye not. And do you not remember? Well, that sounds like experiences we have with our students from time to time, right? How is it that you cannot remember the stuff that we went over on Friday? Yeah, right? That, that's the conversation that he's having here. And, and he said unto them, how is it that you do not understand? Well, spiritually, they're babes. They have a problem, and he alludes to the problem just shortly before this. Um, well, here, this is from Mark 6.52. This is right after the feeding of the 5,000. Mark adds this little comment here. They considered not the miracle of the loaves. Why? Because their hearts were hardened. That's why they don't understand. That's why nothing makes sense to them. So Jesus is trying to explain to them, you know, the feeding of the 4,000, the feeding of the 5,000. How is it that you don't get these things? They still did not get the meaning of the breaking of the bread, which we'll talk about later. Um, the point is, they could not understand what Jesus was saying. So, this is the core issue. They had what uh, Jesus referred to as the leaven of the Pharisees. And, let me just say it this way. Will Rogers, early American television entertainer, was famous for this quote, ignorance lies not in the things you don't know, but in the things you know that ain't so. That was the problem with the disciples. They had things that they knew that ain't so, and that was the leaven of the Pharisees. They also had the leaven of Herod, which was this desire for supremacy. Um, and and this, the passage from Mark chapter 8, verse, I think it's 28 through Mark chapter 10, verse 52, that passage deals with the stuff that they know that ain't so. Now, this is an education term uh, or, or a psychology term, um, proactive interference. It's when the stuff that you already know keeps you from knowing stuff that's new. And that's the problem Jesus was dealing with, was the proactive interference, because they already knew what is the leaven of the Pharisees, which prevented them from understanding the truth as Jesus was teaching it. 
Um, some examples of this. When, when you go shopping for groceries, and then one weekend they move everything around in the store, and now you can't find anything. And so when you're going for the toothpaste, the toothpaste is not where the toothpaste belongs. But you keep going there week after week because the old learning keeps you from, you know, grasping the new reality. You've heard the phrase, it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. Um, it's, again, it's, it's um, proactive interference. So you want to teach them to, um, to shake and, you know, every time you take out your little biscuit for him, he barks. You know, he says, no, I don't want you to bark. I want you to shake. And his, his old learning is interfering with his new learning. Um, you're familiar with this. You come back from winter break and nobody remembers anything. And you find every time you write down something on a piece of paper, the date is not 2018, it's 2017, right? Um, you learn how to solve a math problem the wrong way. And so every time you try and solve that problem, even though you've been explained the right way, you always try to do it the wrong way. Uh, okay, Jesus, Jesus in, in, in the Gospel of Mark, it's divided nicely in half. It's 16 chapters. The first, 18, the first eight chapters, Jesus is hiding everything. And the last eight chapters is Jesus beginning to reveal that he is the Messiah. For the first eight chapters, he hides everything. And so he tells this parable, this is in Mark chapter 4, 9 to 13. He said, is a candle brought to be put under a bushel or under a bed and not set on the candle stand? Well, he is the candle, but he's hiding everything. He hides his teaching in parables. Um, he goes on to say, There's nothing hid which shall not be manifest, neither was anything kept secret, but that it should come abroad. And then, if any man hath ears to hear, let him hear. And of course, the disciples couldn't hear what Jesus was saying. Um, so, the first half, Jesus forbids de demons from telling people who he is. Jesus forbids a leper from telling people that he was healed. Can you imagine that? I mean, this is borders on ridiculous, you know. What is he supposed to say when he comes home, you know? Hi, honey, I'm home. What are you doing home? You're not supposed to be here. Well, I'm better. How did that happen? I'd love to tell you, but I can't. Um, Jesus hid the resurrection of Jairus' daughter, told the parents, don't tell anybody about this. Jesus um, left Israel to hide in Tyre and Sidon. Jesus admonished a deaf and dumb person that he healed. Don't tell people that he was healed. Um, he takes a blind man out of town to heal him. He forbade his disciples from telling people that he is the Christ. Peter, James, and John were not able to speak about the transfiguration. After it happened, he said, don't tell the other disciples. Keep this a secret till after I'm risen from the dead. They had no idea what he meant by that. Um, then... Chapter 9, verse 30, he has a secret journey through Galilee. Um, so the whole thing, the way this gospel is divided, is that Jesus is a bright light that is hiding under a basket. But then this transition, when he asks the question, who do people say that I am? And he admits that he's the Messiah. 
From there on, he begins to expose himself as the Messiah until finally at his trial, he admits, I am the Messiah. And they say, oh, okay, well, this is the light. We must put him on the lampstand, which is the cross. Um, This is the way the book is organized, and it pivots right in the middle on that dialogue. And it's, it's completely symmetrical. Um, all right, I'm going to skip over these things. The idea, though, is a, a mark and frame is when Mark takes two incidents that are similar and he begins and ends the passage with them. And so that's what he does. At the beginning of Mark, cha- in, in this passage in Mark chapter 8, just before this conversation, there is an event that's only in Mark. It's the blind man that Jesus had trouble healing. The, um, you know, Jesus, Jesus anoints the guy's eyes and then he says to him, you see anything? And he says, well, I see men walking around, they kind of look like trees. And Jesus, okay, 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 let's try it again. And then he anoints him again. He's like, yeah, okay, I, men look like men now. Everything's good. And it is a metaphor for that whole passage of Jesus working with his disciples. Because when he spoke to his disciples, he said, how is it that you have eyes but you cannot see? Okay, this is the proactive interference that he's dealing with. And so for that whole passage, three times in that passage, he is teaching the disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be crucified and I will die, but on the third day I'm going to rise from the dead. And they cannot hear a single word that he says. Um, The the other end of the passage is the story of blind Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus, which happens right before Jesus goes into Jerusalem. Now here's an argument. Can you imagine having an argument with Jesus, um, like face-to-face? I mean, maybe we argue with him from time to time in prayer, but not face-to-face, right? Okay, here's how it goes. Jesus, Jesus went on um, and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi, which is the northeastern uh, area above Lake uh, Galilee. And by the way, he asked his disciples, um, who do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But some say, Elijah. And others say, well, one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answers and saith, You're the Christ. And he charged them they should not tell anyone of him. This is what Ellen White says about this. The disciples had so false a conception of the Messiah. In other words, this is what's causing their proactive interference. This is the um, leaven of the Pharisees. Their conception of the Messiah was so false that a public announcement of him would give them no true idea of the character of his work. The disciples expected Christ to reign as a temporal prince, although he had so long concealed his design, they believed that he would not always remain in poverty and obscurity, that the time was near when he would establish his kingdom. And at this point, they're starting the trip to Jerusalem. again, in Desire of Ages, with the death of Christ, the hope of the disciples perished. They looked upon his closed eyelids and drooping head, 
his hair matted with blood, his pierced hands and feet, their anguish was indescribable. Until the last, in other words, even, even though he, he went through the trial, even though they took him, they beat him, even though they nailed him to the cross, even though he was on the cross, they never really believed he would die. They could hardly believe that he was really dead. Overwhelmed with sorrow, notice the next words here. They did not recall his words foretelling the very scene. So three separate times he teaches them, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be crucified. What does he say at the Last Supper? This is my body. Rips it in half. That's not subtle, right? Takes, he takes the wine and he says, this is my blood which I'm shedding for you. And, and what is the result of that? They have an argument about who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom that they're about to establish. They do not understand anything. And until he died, they never really believed he would die. And that was because there were some scriptures that were misinterpreted. So in Mark 8.31, he begins to teach them that he's going to be killed and after three days rise again. And he spake this saying openly. And then Peter says, oh, come, come over here with me, Lord. Um, let me talk to you privately. This is not the way it's supposed to go. You see, Messiah never dies. And he rebukes Jesus. And Jesus turns him around and he, he rebukes him. He turned him about and looked on the disciples and he rebuked Peter and said, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. See, the disciples had an understanding of Daniel chapter 2 that seemed to make perfect sense. There's the Babylonians, the Medes and Persians, there's the Greeks, and then there's the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was then present with them. That was crystal clear. Jesus was with them. He's the rock. He's going to strike that Roman kingdom, and he's going to turn it into powder. And they're on their way to Jerusalem. It seemed crystal clear. Their previous learning present, prevented them from understanding the prophecies that were being fulfilled around them. The danger is the same thing is true for us. That we may think that we know everything with the same level of zeal and sincerity that Peter had. I'm ready to die with you, Lord. You know, we, we may be so sure that we know everything and be taken completely by surprise. So, the reason that I've said all this to you is because I'm going to show you a bunch of spirit of prophecy which may do the same thing to you. You may say, I already know all this. And it may be difficult for you to hear anything different than what you already know. The, the, the old dog struggles to learn the new trick. Right? We write down 2017 when it's 2018. It's, it's proactive interference. Um, this is some of the reasons why they didn't accept Jesus. The people answered, We have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. That's what Peter believed. In other words, Christ will never die. So how do you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? After three score and two weeks, the Messiah shall be cut off. It's plain language, right? That's Daniel 
What, what can that possibly mean? Right? But no one from his day looked at this scripture because the scripture did not agree with what they already knew. In other words, we need to let the scripture change what we know rather than us change the scripture to say what we think it should say. <clears throat> Again, um, why did everybody reject him from his town? Howbeit we know whence this man is, but when Christ comes, no one will know where he came from. In a sense, it's true, right? Because he really came from heaven. So nobody really recognized that he came from heaven, but they all felt like, we know where he's from. He's from Nazareth. And that's why the people of his hometown were so offended. Um, his friends thought he was out of his mind. And they came to forcibly take him and extricate him from his ministry. Because he had to be out of his mind. He seems like he's got some sort of Messiah complex. Right? And he was born with us. We know him. Um, When he comes to his hometown, they ask this question. Isn't this the carpenter? We know him. His brothers are with him. They list their names. We know his sisters. And they're greatly offended. Not only them, John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who proclaimed this is the Messiah, sent messages to Jesus to say, hey, did we make a mistake? Are you really the Messiah? Because... This is not the kind of Messiah I was expecting. I sure didn't think I'd be sitting here in jail. Are you just going to let me rot in here? Ellen White writes extensively about the, the struggle that John the Baptist had in that prison. Um, many of these things I'm going to share with you are probably familiar those who hold the reins of government are not able to solve the problem of moral corruption, <laughs> poverty, pauperism, and increasing crime. Now, she could, have, she could have been alive with us today and, and watched the news and then written the statement. It is so applicable to us now. Um, but this stuff rises. Religious leaders put forth the claim that the fast-spreading corruption is largely attributable to the desecration of the so-called Christian Sabbath and that the enforcement of Sunday observance would greatly improve the morals of society. This claim is urged especially in America. Satan puts his interpretation on events, and they think, as he would have them, that the calamities which fill the land are the result of Sunday-breaking. Thinking to appease the wrath of God, influential men make laws enforcing Sunday observance. That's plural. I want you to notice laws. It isn't a Sunday law. There is a series of Sunday laws, and they rise up levels. Local laws, which are easier to make. State laws, finally culminating in a U.S. national Sunday law. And then Sunday laws spreading to other nations. And finally, a universal Sunday law. It will be declared that men are offending God by the violation of the Sunday Sabbath. That 
this sin has brought calamities which will not cease until Sunday observance shall be strictly enforced and that those who present the claims of the fourth commandment, thus destroying reverence for Sunday, are troublers of the people, preventing their restoration to divine favor and temporal prosperity. I want you to notice the last two words. Temporal prosperity means a healthy economy which implies there is a huge economic crash, and in order to fix the crash, we have to have Sunday laws. In the night season, I was in a large company where the subject of education was agitated, agitating the minds of all present. Many were bringing up objections to changing the character of the education which has long been in vogue. One who has long been our instructor was speaking to the people. He said, the subject of education should interest the whole Seventh-day Adventist body. These words are spoken to me. Charge the teachers in our schools to prepare the students for what is coming upon the world. The Lord has been waiting long for our teachers to walk in the light he has sent them. There is need of a humbling of self. Remember Dr. Simon talked this morning about sitting at Jesus' feet. That indicates a humbling of self. That Christ may restore the moral image of God in man. The character of the education given must be greatly changed before it can give the right mold to our institutions. The science of education is the truth, which is to be so deeply impressed. Um, Jim Ingersoll talked about how it's not deeply impressed that by age 20 we've lost 50% of them. It should be so deeply impressed that the, on the soul that it cannot be obliterated by the error that everywhere abounds. Jim also talked about how the error abounds everywhere through screens. The third angel's message is the truth and light and power and to present it so that the right impression will be made upon the hearts should be the work of our schools as well as of our churches, of the teacher as well as of the minister. Those who accept positions as educators should prize more and more the revealed will of God so plainly and strikingly presented in Daniel and Revelation. I would assert that the problem is proactive interference. The disciples could not hear what Daniel was saying, that the Messiah would be cut off. There are things that we cannot hear that Daniel and Revelation want to say to us, but we have what we see as truth. Truth we're ready to die for, like Peter. Messiah will never die. That's the furthest thing from the truth. It, it can be that we can be so sure that we are so right that we cannot embrace the truth. We must become humble and sit at Jesus' feet to be instructed. Before we can carry the message of present truth in all its fullness to other countries, something has to happen. You see what it is? We must come into the line of true education. The carrying of the truth to all the other countries of the world is the three angels' message that goes out throughout the length and breadth of the world. That doesn't happen until we have success in education, until our education comes into the line that the Lord wants it to come into. 
until we can touch the hem of Jesus' garment and say, we believe in this. We want you to do this. And he takes the reins in his hand. God calls for messengers who will be true reformers. We must educate, educate to prepare people who will understand the message and then give the message to the world. That's our purpose in our schools. So they know what, we, they know what the message is, they believe the message, and they deliver the message. Our people are now being tested as to whether they'll obtain wisdom from the greatest teacher the world ever knew or seek the God of Ekron. Let us determine that we will not be tied by so much as a thread to the educational policies of those who do not discern the voice of God and who will not hearken to his commandments. Our work is reformatory. And it is the purpose of God that through the excellence of the work done, where? Yeah, in our educational institutions. It is his purpose to make our educational institutions deliver the message that the attention of the world shall be called to the last great effort to save the perishing. The third angel is represented as flying through the midst of heaven, showing that the message is to go throughout the length and breadth of the earth. It is the most solemn message ever given to morals, and all who propose to connect themselves with the work should first feel their need of an education of the most thorough training. Plans should be made and efforts should be put forth. Remember John um, Bradshaw last night was saying, we need new plans. We can't have this that half of our students leave the faith by the time they get to college. We can't have that. We need to have plans made and efforts put forth for the improvement of those who anticipate entering any branch of the work. Same way that the children sang in the temple courts, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. So in these last days, whose voices? Children's voices will be raised to give the last message of warning to a perishing world. When heavenly intelligences see that men are no longer permitted to present the truth, the Spirit of God will come upon the children and they will do a work in the proclamation of the truth which the older workers cannot do because their way will be hedged up. In order to understand what is comprehended in the work of education, we need to consider both the nature of man and God's purpose in creating him. We need to consider also the change in man's condition through the coming in of a knowledge of evil and God's plan for still fulfilling his glorious purpose in the education of the human race. When Adam came from his creator's hand, he bore in his physical, mental, and spiritual nature a likeness to his maker. And by infinite love, this plan of, and, the, um, and mercy, the plan of salvation had been devised and a life of probation was granted to restore in man the image of his maker, to bring him back to the perfection in which he was created, to promote the development of body, mind, and soul, that the divine purpose in his creation might be realized. Again, this is the work of redemption, which is education, which is the great object of life. In the highest sense, the work of education and the work of redemption are one. Talked about character building last night. Character building is the most important work ever entrusted to human beings. And never before was its diligent study so important as now. Never was any previous generation called to meet the issues that are so momentous. Never before were young men and women confronted by perils 
so great as confront them today. I think Jim's presentation earlier really underscored that point. Again, here's the problem. The books of Daniel and Revelation are not properly understood. If they were, the word when would not be the first word in the sentence. She's saying that that is a future event. When they're properly understood, believers will have an entirely different religious experience. God desires that his people shall stand before the world a holy people. Why? Because there is a world to be saved by the light of gospel truth. And as the message of truth that is to call men out of darkness into God's marvelous light is given by the church, the lives of its members, sanctified by the spirit of truth, are to bear witness to the verity of the messages proclaimed. In other words, our overt message and our covert message must align. The life that we live and the words that we speak must be in harmony. And that's, that's the point here. United with Christ and God, we shall reveal to the world that as God chose his son to be his representative on earth, even so has Christ chosen us to represent his character. That's why character education is so important. It is essential to the finishing of the work. Everyone who has genuine faith in Christ will represent him in character. The loud cry of the third angel has already begun in the revelation of the righteousness of Christ. Um, John last night made the point that the third angel's message is the message of righteousness by faith. This is the beginning of the light of the angel whose glory shall fill the whole earth. That's a reference to the angel in Revelation chapter 18. Now notice this, in a special sense, Seventh-day Adventists have been set in the world as watchmen and light bearers, and to them has been entrusted the last warning for a perishing world. On them is shining the wonderful light of the Word of God. They have been given a work of the most solemn import, the proclamation of the first, second, and third angel's message. There is no other work of so great importance. They are to allow nothing else to absorb their attention. The most solemn truths that have ever been entrusted to mortals have been given to us to proclaim to the world. The proclamation... To proclaim the proclamation of these truths is to be our work. The world is to be warned, and God's people are to be true to the trust committed to them. It's not a small matter that the counsels and plans of God have been so clearly open to us. It is a wonderful privilege to be able to understand the will of God as revealed in the sure word of prophecy. This places on us a heavy responsibility. We're to understand the progress of events in the marshalling of the nations for the final conflict in the great controversy. In other words, we should understand the order of the end time events. We should know the cause and effect relationships. As we near the end of time, falsehood will be so mingled with the truth that only those who have the guidance of the Holy Spirit will be able to distinguish truth from error. Every wind of doctrine will be blowing. Everything that can be shaken will be shaken. And only those that cannot be shaken will remain. The Laodicean message has been sounding. Take this message in all its phases and sound forth to the people 
wherever providence opens the way. Remember we, the problem that we talked about the disciples having? Right? Metaphorically, they were blind. Right? What is the message to the Laodiceans? Yeah, anoint thine eyes with eyesalve. We are in the same condition as they were. We have the same problem that they have. Why do we quarrel amongst each other? Right? Is it, is it not because we are like babes? Right? We're not, we're not grown up that we can eat spiritual meat. Right? We, we are not growing spiritually. I mean, that's the message to the Laodiceans. Anoint thine eyes with eye salve. Um, we're living in the solemn hour of the judgment when we should afflict our souls, confess our errors, repent of our sins, and pray one for another that we may be healed. Then we shall know if we follow on to know the Lord is going forth as prepared as the morning, and he shall come unto us as the rain, like the former and latter rain. He is speaking to those who make his law void in storms and floods and tempests in earthquakes, by perils by land and sea. Every single time you turn on the news, you see something on that list. You cannot watch the news anymore and not see this happening. And Ellen White says that is the voice of the Lord speaking to us. In another place she says, there are little droplets from those goblets that have the seven last plagues. And the droplets are, are a forewarning of what is to come. They should cause us to be awake. We're standing on the threshold of great and solemn events upon the Mount of Olives. The Savior rehearsed the scenes that were to precede the great event. Ye shall hear of wars and rumor of wars. And we hear that all the time, right? You know, we're going to go to war with Korea. We're going to melt them, fire and fury, right? I mean, it's, it's constantly impending. What, what was the reaction of the people in Hawaii? You know, this is not a drill, right? They were terrified because they've been hearing of wars and rumors of wars. <clears throat> nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in diverse places. We are not at that level. That's like the next level up. We're at the, you know... Come on, it's time to wake up level, right? We're not like at the cold slap in the face level. That level is what Jesus calls the beginning of sorrows. All these are the beginning of sorrows. While these prophecies reveal a partial fulfillment of the destruction of Jerusalem, they have a more direct application in the last days. So everything that he talked about in Matthew 24, we may see that as the past, but she's saying no. That all happens. It's all coming again. Storms rage. This is from Hurricane Sandy. Um, storms rage with destructive violence. Harm comes to man and beast and property because men continue to transgress God's law. He removes their defense. Famine, calamity by sea, and pestilence that walketh at noonday follow men because they've forgotten their Creator. We are amid the perils of the last days, and trying times are before us. Everything that can be shaken will be shaken, that those things that cannot be shaken may remain. Drought, famine, pestilence, earthquakes, casualties by sea and land will multiply. 
Life will be unsafe anywhere. That's a higher level than what we're, talk, we're experiencing right now. Life will be imperiled wherever you are. Only as life is hidden in Christ. Now, while the angels are holding back the four winds, is our opportunity to seek the Lord most earnestly. Do you not realize your peril? You have clung to idols. You are becoming spiritually benumbed. It would be better to deny self and make any sacrifice than live without the presence and favor of God. There is something more to be dreaded by individuals who have had the light and knowledge of truth than drought, famine, or temporal inconveniences. It is a worse thing to lose faith in God, in truth, in duty. It is far worse to choose your own way to love money, to love those things which can minister to selfish gratification and indulgence. It is a terrible thing to imperil the soul's highest interest for any temporal gain or worldly advantage. Now, God is withdrawing his restraining hand from the earth. That's why we see the increase in the natural disasters in the crime, the, the reason the earth is changing the way it is. Long he has been speaking to men and women through the agency of his Holy Spirit, but they have not heeded the call. They can't hear that way. So he has to speak into a way that is a little louder. Now he's speaking to the people and to the world by his judgments. The time of these judgments is a time of mercy for those who have not yet had opportunity to learn the truth. Tenderly the Lord will look upon them. His heart of mercy is touched and his hand is still stretched out to save. That's a tent city that was set up after the earthquake in um, Haiti, 2010. That's a tsunami in um, Japan. Satan will bring disease, disaster, until populous cities are reduced to ruin and desolation. This is the rising uh, during this time which Jesus calls the beginning of sorrows. It rises to higher and higher levels. And it provides the motivation for the Sunday laws. In accidents and calamities by sea and by land, in great conflagrations, in fierce tornadoes, in terrific hailstorms, in tempests and floods and cyclones, tidal waves and earthquakes, in every place and in a thousand forms, Satan is exercising his power. These visitations are to become more and more frequent and disastrous. In the world, now this is the economic aspect of the end time events. In the world, gigantic monopolies will be formed. A few men will combine to grasp all the means to be obtained in certain lines of business. And I put that up because the assets of um, HSBC Bank is $2.3 trillion. That's equal to one-tenth of the U.S. national debt. They have a lot of money. Uh, in fact, the U.S. only has a gross domestic product of about $20 trillion. So, it's um, a lot of money. Satan's work will be seen in the confusion, the strife, the discord between labor and capital. Step by step, the world is reaching the conditions that existed in the days of Noah. And that's from Occupy Wall Street, 2008, the crash of the economy because of um, a bunch of problems with the way uh, banking was regulated. This, this makes the point that what Ellen White said, this disparity of income between 
the poor and the rich, that the middle class will disappear. This is showing the disappearing middle class. While the 1% have seen their incomes rise by 18% in the past decade, those in the middle have actually seen their incomes fall. For men um, with only high school degrees, the decline has been precipitous, 12% in the last quarter century alone. All growth in recent decades has gone um, to those at the top. Ellen White says that agencies of evil are combining their forces and consolidating their strengthening for the last great crisis. Great changes are soon to take place in our world and the final movements will be rapid. Not gradual. It's moving gradually now, but it springs like a mousetrap. Suddenly, in a day, everything is changed. Those who hold the reins of government struggling in vain to place business operations on a more secure basis. That is the whole idea of the reformation of our tax system, to place business operations on a more secure basis. The scriptures describe the conditions just before Christ's second coming of men who are robbing, who by robbery and extortion are amassing great riches. It is written, you have heaped together treasure for the last days. The centralizing of wealth and power, the vast combinations of enriching the few at the expense of the many, the combinations of the poorer classes for the defense of their interests and claims, the spirit of unrest, of riot and bloodshed, the worldwide disseminations of the same teachings that led to the French Revolution. You know there's a chapter in Great Controversy on the French Revolution, and her point is that it is a microcosm. It is a small picture of what the end will be. But the same thing happened in France. You know, it's a huge class of, of lords, the elite, the wealthy, and the middle class disappeared. And eventually they said, enough is enough. And, you know, they, they brought out the guillotine and heads rolled, literally. They, they said, we've had enough. We're close to the same thing. All are tending to involve the whole world in a struggle similar to that which convulsed France. Famine and want and distress increase more and more in the world. Poverty is coming upon the world and there will be a time of trouble. Notice the two concepts she's linking in the same sentence. Poverty and time of trouble. She's showing cause and effect. The poverty will lead to the time of trouble. There will be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. Strife, war, and bloodshed with famine and pestilence raged everywhere. Other nations were engaged in this confusion and war. War caused famine. Want and bloodshed caused pestilence. So there's kind of like a, um, a number of things that happen in parallel. There's, the, um, there's a worldwide economic failure. There's violence against the wealthy as a result of that. There's great famine because of the economic failure. Um, there's pestilence as a result of these wars. The crime increases because the only way to get anything you want is by stealing it. And then there are wars. At the same time, there is um, a unity forming in religion of those who keep Sunday. This is keenly felt by the poorer classes. The devil leads them to do his will in stubbornly resisting things they cannot help. 
This selfishness and violence are exercised, thus selfishness and violence are exercised by man over his fellow man. The ones who are robbed and injured become exasperated, and violence and wickedness and cruelty are created in the world. Soon there will be death and destruction, increasing crime and cruel evil working against the rich who have exalted themselves against the poor. Those who are without God's protection will find no safety in any place or position. Light has been given me that the cities will be filled with confusion, violence, and crime, and that these things will increase to the end of this earth's history. Those who hold the reins of government are not able to solve the problem. The wrath of God is upon the inhabitants of the world already. Fire and flood are destroying thousands of lives and property that has been selfishly accumulated by the oppression of the poor. So there's already some judgment against the rich. Here's an example. That's the um, government palace in Haiti, which um, was destroyed by the earthquake in 2010. Terrible shocks will come upon the earth. The lordly places erected at great expense will certainly become heaps of ruins. Lava will sweep away the treasures of those who for years have been adding to their wealth by securing large possessions at starvation prices from those in their employ. The terrible disasters that are taking place from week to week speak to us in earnest tones of warning, declaring that the end is near, that something great and decisive will soon necessarily take place. Plagues and judgments are already falling, the calamities by land and sea, the unsettled state of society, the alarms of war, forecast approaching events of the greatest magnitude. Religious leaders put forth the claim that the fast-spreading corruption is largely attributable to the desecration of Sunday. Satan works through both religious and secular authorities, moving them to the enforcement of human laws in defiance of the law of God. As the movement for Sunday enforcement becomes more bold and decided, the law will be invoked against commandment keepers. They will be threatened. Notice this is the first level, fines and imprisonment. It isn't a death decree. It starts out small. <clears throat> Satan will have power to bring the appearance of a form before us purporting to be our relatives and our friends that now sleep in Jesus. It will be made to appear as though they were present. The words they uttered while here will be spoken, and the same tone of voice which they had while living will fall upon the ear. All, all this is to deceive the saints and ensnare them into the belief in this delusion. Imagine, imagine your father coming back and saying, you know, Steve, all the things that I taught you your whole life, I, I apologize. I was wrong. You know, the dead don't actually go into the grave. I've been in heaven all this time. And I'm back to tell you, while there's still time, that you need to repent and you need to embrace Sunday. That's what she's saying. People you know that you are close to will come and talk to you. Demons will impersonate them. And why not? Satan himself will impersonate Christ. Communications from the spirits will declare that God has sent them to convince the rejectors of Sunday of their error, affirming that the law of the land should be obeyed as the law of God. They will lament the great wickedness in the world and second the testimony of religious teachers that the degraded state of morals is caused by the desecration of Sunday. 
Great will be the indignation excited against all who refuse to accept their testimony. In other words, she's saying it's rampant. It will be everywhere. Men under the influence of evil spirits will work miracles. Wonderful scenes with which Satan will be closely connected will soon take place. God's word declares that Satan will work miracles. These works of apparent healing will bring Seventh-day Adventists to the test. Satan puts his interpretation on events. Um, Influential men will make laws enforcing Sunday observance. The first day of week, possessing no sanctity, will be set up just as the image in Babylon was set up. When the leading churches of the United States, uniting upon such points of doctrine as held by them in common, shall influence the state to enforce their decrees and sustain their institutions, then Protestant America will have formed an image of the Roman hierarchy and the infliction of civil penalties upon the dissenters will inevitably result. That's not a death decree, it's civil penalties. The Lord has shown me clearly that the image of the beast will be formed before what? Before probation closes. For it's the great test of the people of God by which their eternal destiny will be decided. National apostasy will be speedily followed by national ruin. In other words, everything that I've said to you up to this time, I have been talking about what Jesus calls the beginning of sorrows. He says, this is not the end, it's only the beginning of sorrows. This is the second step. This is crossing the line. When the United States makes that U.S. National Sunday Law, then the angel of mercy leaves the United States never to return. And the disasters bump up to a way higher level. This national apostasy is speedily followed by national ruin. The assumption of power on the part of our nation in the decree enforcing the papal Sabbath will be a warning to us. It will then be time to leave the large cities preparatory to leaving the smaller ones for retired homes and secluded places among the mountains. This apostasy will be a sign to us that the limit of God's forbearance is reached, that the measure of our nation's iniquity is full, that the angel of mercy is about to take her flight, never to return. The people of God will then be plunged into the scenes of affliction and distress which the prophets described as the time of Jacob's trouble. There are things you're probably familiar with. Ellen White had visions. Some of them are written in Testimonies, Volume 9. Great balls of fire from heaven. Sometimes she describes them destroying buildings in a city. She describes the scene as looking out and seeing these things. Sometimes she describes herself as being in suburbs, wealthy suburbs, big houses. And great balls of fire come down and all the neighbors are standing and the neighbors are talking to each other. And one of the neighbors is apparently an Adventist and they say, yeah, we knew that the judgments of God were coming. We just didn't know they would be this soon. And she says their neighbors turned to them and they said, you knew this was going to happen? Why didn't you tell us? That's, that's the question that really reverberates to us. Um, how much... How much of the end time events should we let happen 
before we begin to tell anybody, hey, you know, you might want to repent. Um, there's so much about the fire, but the fire is what follows the U.S. National Sunday Law, and it's a judgment upon the wealthy for causing the worldwide poverty. Um, after the judgment, all during this time has been God's people's preparation of the cleansing. And Ellen White says, when everything is repented of, then comes the sealing. After these things, I saw the four angels stand on the four corners, holding the four winds, that the wind should not blow. And then I saw another angel ascending from the east. And Ellen White says that the same way that the wax takes impression of the seal, so the soul is to, is to take the impression of the Spirit of God and retain the image of Christ, which is where we were at the start. Education is to restore in man the image of Christ, which is the seal of God. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of salvation. Those, those texts, go ye into all the world, teach the um, Matthew 24, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world, then shall the end come. The three angels' message that the gospel is presented to every kindred, nation, and tongue. This is the message, um, and the Bible says it will, be, it will cover the earth the same way that the waters cover the ocean. This is where it gets really bad. The church has long professed to look for the Savior's advent as the consummation of her hopes. So the great deceiver will make it appear that Christ really has come. And then he goes throughout the world to encourage world leaders to pass these Sunday laws. All the judgments before the time of trouble, even during the little time of trouble, are mingled with mercy. But during the great time of trouble, there's no more mercy. It's a higher level. And then I took the last part and I really condensed it down. <clears throat> a general decree, this is the world Sunday law. A general decree has fixed the time when the commandment keepers may be put to death. Their enemies will, in some cases, anticipate the decree and before the time specified, they will endeavor to take their lives. Angry multitudes, this is in great controversy, Suddenly there is this darkness. They are about to kill the people of God. They're going to shoot them. They're going to stab them. Suddenly they can't see them because there's worldwide darkness. And then they begin to see light. They see light in heaven. And then they recognize, oh, that's, that's Jesus. And he's got in his hand two tablets. They're Ten Commandments. And one of them has this halo about it. It's the fourth commandment. And then they begin to realize, wow, I've really been deceived. And they've got these weapons in their hand, and they're kind of angry. And they're thinking, you know, I remember who taught me all this stuff that was wrong. And they turn, and they go, and they, at that time, the judgment is really poured out on the pastors and the priests and ministers who led people into all this error. Um, and that's not the second coming. There's other things that happened after that. But eventually you come to the second coming. And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the living righteous arise and they're caught up to meet Jesus in the air. The call for us, I want to touch the hem of Jesus' garment and say, I don't want this to be prophecy anymore. I want this to be reality. 
I want to see revival in our schools. I want us to have Jesus living deep in our hearts. I want us to have a consistency between our overt and our covert message. I want people to be convicted by the lives that we live. I want to be used every day by the Lord in his own serendipitous way. You know, not in plans that I fashion, but that he takes a hold of the work himself and makes it go. And I, I pray for that, for myself and for all of us. And I pray that our time together may be like the mustard seed that leverages the whole mountain. If you would, stand with me and let's have a closing word of prayer. Our Father, we pray that Jesus would draw nigh to each one here. The same way that you looked at um, fishermen who didn't, didn't have anything to commend them as great teachers, yet you made them great teachers that transformed the world in their time. And I pray for the same thing that there are not many of us here, that there's not much to commend us, but we pray that through the touch of Jesus, life would be infused in us personally, in our institutions, and in your work, and that that life would flow forth from this time and this place in greater waves of blessing to prepare our students, to carry the message, to prepare people to meet you at your coming, to grow faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.